0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. It's a virtual tour of biblical sites, and more importantly, what difference they make in our lives. To see more, just head on over to WalkingTheBibleLands.com Hello and welcome to Live the Bible, My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. In this episode, we look at our culture right in the face as we see what the Bible has to say about three different people the good, the bad, and the almighty. And as we look closely, we see there are really only two different groups, not three. Well, I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. Several years ago, the speedometer went out in our family van. You know, and that's kind of a hassle. I mean, speedometer's nice, but, you know, van still works. So if you're, it's one of those things you think, well, you know, I'll get that taken care of soon. So we travel to Cross Texas for some holiday, Christmas, or I forget what it was. It's probably Christmas. And, you know, we're traveling along the highway, and when you don't know how fast you're going you know, you make a good guess, conservative guess, and you follow along with the speed of everybody else, because you figure, you know, that's probably the speed you should be going. Well, turns out that's a wrong way to figure it. I saw the lights flashing behind me, and uh, pulled us over, and the officer came over and you know, I told him my story. He said, Look, our speedometer's out. And he said, Well, oh, really? How long's it been out? <laughs> so I, you know, told him, Well, it's been a while. He said, Well, you probably need to get that fixed. And he, he let us go just with a warning and a very stern face. But I thought, you know, about that uh, a lot after it happened. I'm very grateful that I didn't get a ticket. But I thought, you know, if we don't have an instrument, that gives us a standard. We'll just do what we think, won't we? And if we're not sure what to do, we'll look around and see what everybody else is doing. And we'll go that speed. And typically, (laughs) it's wrong. Well, that goes for a lot more than just uh, cars. It goes with life. And the challenge, I think, can be sometimes, even as Christians, we have a standard, we know very clearly in the Word of God, we have a speedometer that is right on the money. But we don't often look at the dashboard. We'll be very challenged by what our instrument tells us, especially when life presents itself as a challenge, when we're running late. We want to go with the car metaphor, when we're running late or when the jerk in front of us is in the fast lane and won't scoot over. We find all sort of sort of exceptions as to why we can avoid what the word of God tells us. Listen to these verses for just a moment. I won't tell you where they're from because I want you to just listen to the words. (laughs) How long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous Therefore justice comes out perverted. These are the opening words of Habakkuk's letter and what was true centuries ago we find ourselves it will find so true in our culture today as well, don't we? Habakkuk's words could have been written this week because they're true. They're true for us as believers in the culture that we live in as well. We have a we have a great, Good God, we have a great standard that he's given us in the Bible. But boy, we also have a huge challenge as we live in the world we live in. God tolerates so much evil. Habakkuk's question is fantastic. God, how long am I going to cry out to you for help and you don't hear? Meaning, you don't do anything. Not that he doesn't hear, but that he doesn't hear and act. I cry out to you violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look on iniquity? We live in a culture that is full of that, isn't it? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, and let's continue with the great apostle's final words to his readers and to us. They go right along with what we've just read from Habakkuk. They go right along with the metaphor I've drawn from my broken speedometer, uh, the foundation, Peter told us in the last couple times we've been together, of our life as a Christian is based on faith in Christ. And we're to add to that faith a number of qualities. In fact, we're told in 2 Peter 1, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply all these things. And then he says in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. In other words, to do these qualities for as long as you practice these things, you won't stumble. And then in verse 12, he says, now I also want to be ready and diligent to remind you uh, of these things, even though you already know them. Peter is laboring in his letter to remind us of what we already know. And one of the things he points us to is the word of God to continually go back to the Word of God. You've read the Bible. Continue reading the Bible, Peter says, because from it, God's precious promises, we have everything we need for life and godliness. This is back in verse 3. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in His precious promises. Through the knowledge of Him who called us, His magnificent promises that help us escape the corruption of the world. We saw last time that Peter says he is going to labor. He's going to be diligent to remind us of the Bible. And he gave us several specific things about the Bible we saw last time. Um, Verse 16, he says, we didn't make it up. We're eyewitnesses of it. Uh, Verse 19, he tells us the source of truth. uh, 19 really through 21, the source of truth is not from people. It's from God. And we can't just decide willy-nilly what the Bible means. No prophecy of Scripture is um, a matter of one's own interpretation. Meaning comes from the person who wrote it. I write you a letter, I mean what I said in the letter. Now, if you don't understand it, the problem is either that I'm not a very good communicator or maybe there's something from your perspective you don't understand. But I mean what I wrote. So when we come to the Bible, when we come to the speedometer, when we come to the standard, if we don't understand it, the problem isn't with God because he communicated it perfectly. It could be there's something wrong with us or our lack of understanding, either the culture or the centuries of difference in language and translation. The limitation's with us. It's not with the Lord. And so our challenge is to get to the place where we can understand what God means. Um, so now in chapter 2, we turn a corner. Or we might say we've been given a very good reason why Peter has labored in all this first chapter to say, read your Bible. Commit yourself to the Word of God for your life. And here's one reason why. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You see, Peter says not only were there true prophets in the Old Testament, the last couple of verses of that previous chapter, but there were also false prophets. If you, When you read through the Old Testament, you see... Right along with all the godly prophets, there were ungodly prophets, false prophets, those who prophesied what people wanted to hear and not necessarily what God had said. And Peter says the same's true of us. Just because somebody says God says something doesn't mean God said it. We have to be very careful about believing just because someone has a, um, authority or wears a collar, or says the Bible says something, or even quotes Scripture. And that's very subtle. You think about the fact that Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus at the temptation. He misquoted it, misinterpreted it. But the Word of God is our standard. And Peter says false prophets, false teachers are going to be right there with you. And notice, they secretly introduce destructive heresies. They introduce it. Like we saw last week, the source of truth comes from God. Peter says these false prophets, the source of what they're saying comes from them. They introduce it, and they secretly introduce it, kind of slide it in, destructive heresies. And these heresies are defined in a couple of ways. It says they're denying the master who bought them. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're Christians because Christ died for everybody. Christ bought, you might say, everybody, but they deny Jesus. They deny the master who died on the cross for their sins. And when someone denies Christ, whether it's a false teacher or anybody else, Peter says that swift destruction, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, that doesn't mean that it happens right away, but that when it happens, it will be swift. Well, let's keep reading. Verse two. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says that their teaching is laced with sensuality. The word there is a word, uh, it's sort of a, a tame translation, but the word there simply simply means shameless sexual conduct. Whenever you see a teacher of the Bible who brings along with him shameless sexual conduct, then you know that's a false teacher. We've seen cults galore that the, the, the main leader of the cult, for some reason, has to have this harem of women. That's that's false teaching, clearly. If there is a life that, that is that has shameless sexual conduct, Peter says, watch out, watch out. Why do many follow their sensuality? Well, it's honestly, because it's part of our fallen nature. It's really easy to just kind of, get in with the flow, to go the speed of everybody else if you're not looking at the standard. The way of truth is maligned, or literally, Peter writes, it's blasphemed. They take advantage of you with false words. The word here for false is the Greek word plastos. We get our word plastic from it. It means something that's shaped or formed. Plastic is very easy to shape and make it whatever you want it to be. It's the idea with their false words, the words that they use are words that are shaped and formed that are wrong. So, again, remember the end of chapter 1. Peter says that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We don't get to decide what the Bible means. God knows what it means. So, keep your finger here in 2 Peter and flip back, if you would, all the way to the beginning in Genesis and look at chapter 3. Look at Genesis 3. Let's spend just a moment here looking where this happened, where this began. Genesis 3, right in the very first verse. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, pause just for a second. If you look in your margin, I hope that in verse 1 you have a cross reference to Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2. The serpent is Satan. Or or Satan is appearing here in the form of a serpent. So let's keep that in mind as we're reading through this. The serpent is more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. couple of observations here, if you look at this. We're not going to go back and read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, but the emphasis, the, the, the topic of conversation between Satan and Eve is what God has said. What is God's word? What has the Lord said? What has God said? And Satan initiates this conversation by immediately trying to discredit God's word. This is Genesis 3. This is the very beginning. This is even before the fall. There's no sin in humanity yet. Satan's tactic for causing us to stumble and fall is to discredit God's word. That's the same tactic that's, that has gone all the way down through history. It's the same tactic that you and I struggle with today. Dis, someone trying to discredit the Bible has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman quotes, or we could say in a a sense, attempts to quote what God has said. She gets most of it right. She says from the the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. God didn't say you can't touch it. She added that. I'm not sure where she got that. But, it's enough to be persnickety here when we're talking about what God has said or you will die and now the serpent says to the woman verse 4 you surely will not die now Satan is doing more than simply discrediting God's word he is contradicting God's word Verse 5, and here's why you will not die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So now Satan is not only discrediting God's word, trying to cause doubt on God's word, but is now discrediting God's goodness. God does, God's word for you is trying to hem you in. This is keeping you back. God knows that if you do what I'm suggesting you do, you will be free. You will be able to be, uh, you, your eyes will be opened. Right now, you're, you're not seeing the full picture, and it's because of God's word. Brush that aside. Now look at what happens in verse 6. When God's word and God's goodness is discredited, the woman is left to make a decision based simply on her own wisdom. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. As soon as we remove God's word from our decision-making process, as soon as the standard is taken away, and now we're left to simply approach any decision or any circumstance in life without the word of God, but simply with our own wits and wisdom, all we're left with is potential deception. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I think it's uh, verse uh, 2 Corinthians, verse chapter 11 verse 3. He says just as Eve, I'll sort of paraphrase it. He says, "I'm concerned for you that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, that you also may be led astray from your pure and simple devotion to Christ." Okay, turn back to 2nd Peter it's helpful for us to go back to Genesis 3 often in our minds, especially when we come to the point of feeling like, I'm not sure the Bible's got it right here. Because what voice is that speaking to us? Did God really say X, Y, Z? Well, he if he said it, then he means it. I remember when um, Kathy and I lived at, Right after we were married, we lived in a house that had a big yard, had a chain link fence, and my dog at that time, Sam, a Labrador, a black Labrador, oh, the greatest dog in the world. Except Sam loved to get out of the, the yard, and the fence was only about you know four feet high, and that was nothing for a Labrador. I mean, she could jump that thing like a deer, and did. And it drove me nuts. And I would I'd be and looking out the front yard, and there's this black flash. And I'd run out the front, Sam, and I'd go running after Sam. And oh, we did this time and time again. And I'd get so upset at Sam. It's like, she's such a great Samantha was her name, we call her Sam. She's such a great dog, except for this. And one day. I was sitting in the front room, and I saw, again, a black flash. And I ran out, and I saw the black, and I yelled Sam, and the, the, the flash, the dog, turned and ran. And I go, she's jumping back over the fence because she knows she's about to get it. So I took a shortcut through the house and went through the backyard, got into the backyard just in time to see Sam, Sam standing there, like, ha <laughs> And so I took my shoe or whatever it was, and I gave her a good, good pop on the rear. And uh, I was mad at her. I really was. And about the time I, I was done spanking her, I looked and I saw on the other side of the chain link fence another black lab. It wasn't Sam I saw. This time. It was that other dog. My dog thought I'd come out there to say hi to her, and instead I'd come out there to give her a good wallop in. There could have been nothing more wrong with what I was doing. I was completely wrong. But at the time, I thought I was completely right. Hey everybody, Wayne here. This podcast has been going for months now. And if you've not left a review, you know, your review could really help other busy people benefit from this content. That's because one of the main ways that new listeners find the Live the Bible podcast is through listener reviews. So would you take just a couple of minutes right now to leave a review? You can do so at waynestyles.com podcast. Thank you so much. And now back to the message. I was completely wrong, but at the time, I thought I was completely right. I hope that there have been gifts in your life like that, and I mean that. I really do. Those are very helpful times for us to realize we're not always right when we are so convinced we are. We're fallible, we're prone to error. We desperately need God's word. When we tell our children not to run in the street, it's not to restrict their freedom, it's to save their life. God's rules have reasons. The reason that he told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree in the, in the garden is because the day you eat of it, you will die. That was love to tell them that. It was not, it would be unloving to not say anything. It wasn't restricting them, it was protecting them. If there is a restriction, it is for protection. God's best intentions for us are found in his word, including the restrictions that we don't understand. Peter gives us a heads up that false teachers are going to do their best to lead us astray. They're going to introduce destructive heresies. They're going to tell us that a pure and moral life is restricting you as opposed to protecting you. And many will buy their lies and will follow them, as Peter says here in verse 2. But their judgment, Peter says, is not asleep. There will be consequences for ignoring God's word. And let's look. uh, Peter gives several examples here of what he means when he says their judgment from long ago is not idle. God is not soft on sin. He he will judge sin. Look at verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Let's pause there. He gives three examples. We'll just pause after reading each one. Angels. God didn't create evil, but he created ev- he created uh, the potential for evil. It's sort of a, a stumbling block, I think, sometimes for us when we think about the fact that uh, god who is eternally good where did evil ever come from if everything is created by a good god how could evil even enter the picture at all because god when he created beings created them with the potential to choose good or evil because if there is no true choice then there is no true worship then we're merely robots doing what we're designed to do as opposed to doing what we choose to do. Angels, at some point in the created order of uh, time before time, before Genesis 1, verse 1, because we know Satan shows up early on there, and there's no explanation of how the, the process of angels falling happened, but it happened, and we see throughout the Scriptures a couple of moments where we can piece together how it happened. But the point is simply this, that angels made a choice. Satan made a choice, and evidently he deceived enough of the angels or took enough of them with him that now that there is a demonic order as well. But God is not soft on sin. Verse 4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. It's sort of an unfortunate translation, hell, because the original word isn't hell, uh, hell in Greek is Gehenna, and Jesus uses that word to refer to the lake of fire. It's a very specific term for a very specific time. We see in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire is what's called, referred to as hell, and technically nobody is in hell yet. So when we talk about somebody dying and going to hell, that's kind of a nice way to, to phrase it, But but literally nobody is in hell yet. Uh, they're in a place called Hades, which is a place of torment. I mean, it's the next, next best thing to hell. And, it, and we're told that in Revelation that death and Hades will empty into the lake of fire. But right now, nobody's there. This word is the Greek word Tartarus. It's the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. And it's sort of an interesting use. Tartarus was a place that the Greeks understood as a place of punishment for the worst of the worst. And it's sort of a, a metaphor, a figure of speech, you could say, of Peter saying that that the Lord sent these angels, the worst of the worst, to Alcatraz, might be a, a way to say it. This is where you sent the ones that, that with, with there's no hope, there's no, you know, they're the worst of the worst. And he committed some of these angels to Tartarus or to these pits, As it's referred to, to the abyss. In fact, there is a, uh, you remember a time in Jesus' ministry when he cast out some demons and they said, are you going to send us into the abyss before it's time? In other words, they go, hey, at least we've got a little time before, before we're sent there. This is what they're referring to. This abyss. And Peter's point is not to give us a a treatise on demons or angelology here, but simply to say God isn't soft on sin. When these particular angels sinned, God dealt with it, and He put them in a place in pits of darkness reserved for judgment. They're in a holding tank waiting for the final judgment. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Again, Peter's reminding us God's not soft on sin. He's never been soft on sin. He takes it seriously. Just as angels were created good, but with the potential for evil, so was humanity, and the first global judgment or proof of this that God will deal with or could and, and has dealt with the world as a whole is shown in the flood, which is sort of a, a prediction of the, the next time that he does that, not through water, but through fire, which we'll see in the next chapter. But again, his second illustration, he's not soft on sin. He, he dealt with angels. He dealt with the ancient world at the time of Noah. Um, and the third example is in verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented. Day after day by their lawless deeds. So, the third example, Peter moves a little farther down history. Interesting, he never leaves Genesis by giving these examples. It's just all right there at the beginning. And he points to Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice how Peter describes the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah as ungodly, as having sensual conduct, as unprincipled men. And is having lawless deeds sensual conduct notice the sin of Sodom was sexual sometimes you'll read Genesis 18 or you you'll hear some interpretations of Genesis 19 saying uh, well the sin of Sodom was inhospitality seriously that they weren't hospitable to those men they truly were not hospitable to those men But the sin clearly was not in hospitality. Peter tells us what it was. It was sensuality. It was sexual. And a plain reading of Genesis 19 shows us that. But let's take a second and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Keep your finger in 2 Peter, but look at 1 Corinthians 6. This is so important. 1 Corinthians 6. Look at, starting in verse 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's so important that we keep our mind wrapped around these three verses as we live in the culture we live in. It is so easy for us as Christians, evangelicals, um, to go way overboard on the homosexual issue. And by way overboard, I mean our fingers start pointing without looking also at ourselves. Notice this list. Right there along with homosexuals, in verse 9, and effeminate, which is the passive partner in the homosexual act, we've got adulterers, we've got fornicators, we've got idolaters, we've got thieves, and verse 10, we even have the covetous. The covetous. You're telling me the covetous ranks right up there with all these? Yeah. So says Paul. And it's so important we remember that because it's so easy for us to run around with signs. There's not a lot of people running around with signs that saying, quit being covetous, <laughs> is there? We pick the sins that are not ours to go on parade about. When the real issue is much, much deeper than that. Kathy and I have a daughter who is a nurse at a hospital here in town and she works, our daughter loves the Lord and is a strong witness for Christ in her workplace. And she, live, she works with people who don't necessarily share that, including some who are very much part of the LGBT community. And they know that Kate's a Christian and asked her about, you know, in fact, one lady said to her, I just I feel like you're probably judging me, aren't you? And Katie, because that's what we give that community is judgment. We don't give them the love of Christ. We give them the judgment. We hold up. Uh, we hold up verse nine and ten, and somehow we never get around to verse eleven. But anyway, Kate. Kate said, "You know, I uh, I'm not judging you." Uh, I think that to begin our conversation about that issue is way out on a limb when the reality is we need to be talking about something that's far more rooted in your, just your relationship with God, my relationship with God. And she nailed it. That was exactly right. And that's what Paul says. Such were some of you. The real issue is not the sins that are listed here. But what is your relationship with Jesus Christ? These sins can keep you out of the kingdom of God, no doubt, apart from Christ. But with Christ, these sins don't matter. In fact, even in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, if you look at this, you see before and after that the Corinthians were struggling with these very things. He says, such were some of you. And then he goes on to say, "You'd be careful that you don't get back into this. Um, the context of this is, you know, in chapter 5 as well. But here's the point, my friends. I just want to to reiterate to you as well as to myself, big sin, little sin, sin is sin, and God is holy. And only by the grace of God and Jesus Christ are any of us saved. I went to a conference in Nashville several years ago, um, the National Religious Broadcasters, NRB, and went to a panel discussion with some Christians who are involved in the LGBT community. There was uh, uh, several up on the stage who uh, were homosexual, one who is homosexual but is not practicing homosexual, and uh, several others who were not homosexuals. And the conversation was, what does God's word say about this? That was at least the initial conversation. And as soon as they got into the Bible, a clear reading of the Bible shows what the Bible says about this, and basically it all boiled down to, well, we don't feel loved. We don't feel loved, we feel judged. And that's really the issue. Why is it that in our culture that we are so bent on judging as opposed to saying, you know what? You got sin, I got sin. The real issue is, what's your relationship with God? We're all sinners, whether it's this particular one or that one. What's your relationship with God? And Jesus Christ offers you the bridge, the payment for your sins. The Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, that's cheerful. Let's turn back to 2 Peter 2. If God were to get rid of all the evil in the world, and often this is the challenge, if God is so good, why doesn't he get rid of all the evil in the world? Well, who's he going to start with? Let's start with you. (laughs) Then all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, God is patient. And this is what Peter is going to tell us about in the next chapter. I won't steal the thunder much from chapter 3, but simply saying the reason God, God deals with evil. We see it clearly. He did it with the angels. He did it with the flood. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. Why isn't he doing it now? This was Habakkuk's problem. This is our problem. Lord, why, why do you see what's happening and yet do nothing? Peter's going to tell us in chapter 3, but basically here's, here's a sneak preview. He says, because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to faith. God permits evil so that we may choose good. So look at verse 9. The news gets good. If this, if this, if this, if this, then verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, including the Bible, the authority is not just the authority placed over you, but it's the authority placed over you by God from God's Word, ultimately, God's Word. The good news is that just as God rescued Noah, just as God rescued Lot, and we didn't really get into it, but look at that, that verse 8, that parenthesis, that talks about Lot's tormenting, living in Sodom day after day. Lot, a believer, living among these unprincipled people and and struggling with it day after day. He rescued Lot, he rescued Noah, and then it says in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials or from temptation. The word there could also mean trials. That God can take us out. When it's time to judge the world again, we know from prophecy, scanning the New Testament, Old Testament, but particularly the New, that the time, the seven-year tribulation in the world, once again, God's going God's to gonna pull a Noah, God's going to pull a lot, God's going to pull us out of this world at the rapture, and God will deal with the ungodly, those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus. So the good news is, we're not going to have to deal with this forever. God's going to rescue us from it. And God's not going to tolerate evil in the world forever. He hasn't in the past in, in, the world, in the future, he'll deal with it again. But in the meantime, how do we live with it? How do we deal with it? Some confidence that God's got it all worked out. But also, I don't know, just a great reminder here to live our life, live our lives in grace, to live our lives in grace. Some of you probably have people that you know, friends, family, that are really struggling Uh, struggling in lives that we would say lives of sin. In a sense, it's really all relative, isn't it? Because we struggle in lives of sin. But we're just, we understand that Jesus died for those sins. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it either. We can take encouragement that with this, as well as many other passages, that we're not going to have to face God's judgment, that Christ has lifted us from that. That's the good news that we can share with others. So when we face the world, let's don't carry signs that talk about, talk about acts, unless maybe they're our own. Let's carry signs that talk about God's love. I don't mean that we go soft on sin, I mean let's keep first things first. Let's share with others the good news that everybody has sinned and Jesus died for that. That's, that's the message that our world needs to hear not all this stuff on the fringes that just makes Christians and the message of Christianity look bad. It's just like what Chuck was talking about in the first, in the first hour, that when we as Christians don't do what the Bible says and, and quit uh, living a life of hypocrisy ourselves, then, then the world looks at us and says, I don't want any part of that. But when we are so winsome, like Jesus was, that tax collectors and prostitutes – were attracted to Christ's character, not repulsed by him. There was something about him that drew them in. It was grace. It was the religious people that didn't like Jesus because he pointed out their hypocrisy, which they weren't willing to admit. That's not who we want to be. That's not who we want to be. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you tell us the truth, that you give us the Bible which is an instrument that tells us what the speed limit is and it tells us we've all broken it. Thank you for the good news that Jesus has come and has died to pay our ticket. He's died to pay the price that was ours to pay that we couldn't pay. That instead, he has died for us in our place. Thank you for Peter's words that remind us that as we live in this world that is so fraught with evil, that you, Lord, are not soft on sin. You've dealt with it in the past. You'll deal with it in the future. And you're, you're also able to rescue us from it when the time comes. But Father, we also ask that as we make our way through the world and as we rub shoulders with the world, that the world would see the love of God and the grace of God that the good news of the gospel would be just that, good news, not condemnation. Give us wisdom and a winsomeness that would allow us to be uh, the aroma of life to a world that desperately needs it. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. As we read Peter's words, we saw the good, the bad, and the almighty. But if we're honest, when we read the scriptures, we see there are really only two groups, the almighty and everybody else, the bad. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. But the real issue isn't, how is your sin different than mine? The real issue is, what are we going to do with our sin? When Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for all of our sins, And our faith in Him is where our relationship with Him begins. Well, then we read God's Word in order to know how to live each day. Well, next week we look at some great lessons from a bad example. Actually, it's good news, so don't miss next week's podcast. Until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.